Okay, today we're going to be reading uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 23. May I ask if we please rise in the reading of God's word. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Lord, we come here today gathered in this church, this beautiful church, listening to God's word. I ask if you open up our minds and and open up our hearts to the words that are about to be um, spoken to us and given to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, today we are talking about Judgment Day, and I think there's a lot of confusion on this subject, so we're going to do a bit of a deep dive this morning. Uh, If you grew up in church as I did, this is probably what you were taught about Judgment Day, something like this, that on the day of God's judgment, all of us, all humans living and dead, will be brought before God. God will open up the Lamb's Book of Life, and that book are the names of all those who believed in Jesus. Uh, and anyone whose name is found written there, regardless of how they lived their lives, their souls will be allowed into heaven where they will live forever. Anyone whose name was not found written in that book will be sentenced to hell forever, and it's determined by whether or not you believed in Jesus, or maybe, depending on your church background, whether or not you prayed uh, the sinner's prayer, asking Christ to save you. Now, that's the common understanding of Judgment Day and Eternity to Follow, and the only problem with that is it's almost entirely inaccurate. By the time we are finished today, you're going to have a very clear understanding of what Scripture teaches on this subject, because it's very clear, it's very straightforward and simple if you just read what the Bible says and set aside preconceived notions. First, let me just clarify two kind of pet peeves of mine. These aren't like the biggest deal in the world, but they really bother me. Um, First is this idea that our souls are going to spend eternity in heaven. It is true that when a Christian dies, their soul goes to heaven, but that is a temporary thing. Our final hope is not to float around in the sky as some sort of disembodied spirit. 
Rather, our future as Christians is a resurrected body. Uh, you can see this in great detail in many passages of Scripture. Here's just one in uh, actually this very letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul talks at length about this. Here's just one section. Starting with verse 51, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So those who die as followers of Christ will be raised from the dead. Our bodies will be reunited with our spirits. So our eternal destiny is not to float around as a spirit forever, but rather on Resurrection Day, we will once again take on a physical existence, just as Christ did after the resurrection. When Christ arose from the dead, he had, and still has, a physical body. He could be touched. Uh, We see him in the Gospels eating after the resurrection, eating broiled fish. So he had a body, a physical body. Now, it wasn't the type of body that you and I are necessarily familiar with, because we also see him doing things like walking through walls, uh, vanishing from one place to another. So our bodies will be different, and that's what Paul is saying here. Our bodies will be different from what we experience now. Our mortal bodies will be resurrected, they will be changed, and we will put on immortality. The second thing to clarify right off the bat is that we don't spend eternity in the sky somewhere. I remember as a child being taught, you know, this idea of going to heaven when you die forever, and I distinctly did not want to go to heaven uh, because it sounded kind of boring and unappealing. Uh, Floating around on some clouds somewhere in some ethereal place uh, where we don't really have much to do, all of that was just very unappealing and sounded kind of weird to me as a kid. And it's all built on a flawed premise. Heaven is not some place up in the sky. Heaven is the place of God's presence. And though our souls do go to heaven when we die, we do go to be with the Lord, that is not our final destination. Our souls will be reunited with our new immortal bodies at the resurrection, and then we will spend eternity on earth, okay, on this earth, a redeemed earth, With sickness and sin and death eradicated, Christ will rule from Jerusalem over all the world. We will have immortal bodies, so we'll be physical beings, uh, though not the same exact kind of bodies that we have now, which grow old and die. We will have immortal bodies. We will live forever with Christ on the new earth. And I suspect that life then will be more like life here and now than we may think. All the joys and pleasures of life The beauty of sunsets, the activities that bring us happiness, spending time with friends and family, all of that, I think, carries over into eternity. What will be different is the lack of death, the lack of suffering and oppression and injustice. In many ways, it will be just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before the curse, before the fall of mankind into sin and death. God will dwell among us, and we will experience life on earth as he planned for us from the beginning. Again, many passages of Scripture teach this, but here's just one, 2 Peter 3.13. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. New heavens and new earth, that's a phrase from Isaiah. It's also used in Revelation. 
to describe where when God dwells among his people. So again, heaven, don't think so much about a location somewhere up above the atmosphere. Rather, heaven is the place of God's presence. And when Jesus returns and the dead are raised and judgment day is over, heaven and earth will unite. In Revelation, it speaks of heaven coming down to earth. We'll read this in a few minutes. Uh, But in Revelation 21, heaven is pictured as a city coming down to earth, which is a symbolic way to say that God will place his very presence on this world and he will dwell among us. But we're right here on earth. We're not floating somewhere up in the sky. And I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot more appealing to me. Living forever on earth with Christ ruling, the curse of sin and death lifted. That sounds pretty great. Okay, so those are the first things to clarify. The rest will become clear as we go through the rest of this introduction. We will get to 1 Corinthians 3 later, uh, but I got some questions about this a few weeks ago uh, from some of you, and so I thought it would be a good time to cover this in some detail this morning. So now we're going to just sort of get an overview of what does the Bible teach about Judgment Day in particular? Five very simple things we can say for certain from the Bible. Here they are. First, Scripture teaches that there is a day of judgment coming. Seems like an obvious point, but this is where we'll start. Acts 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So God has determined a day on which Christ will judge the world. That day is set. In each day that we move forward in time, we are one day closer to the judgment day, which has been fixed. So there is a day of judgment coming. Point number two, very simply, all of us will stand before Christ on that day. Every single person who has ever lived will stand before Christ and be judged. Romans 14, verse 10, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So there is a day of judgment coming. All of us will stand before God on that day. Number three, This day of judgment will reveal everything about our lives. Every secret will be laid open before the eyes of God. Romans 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts while their conscience also bears witness And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So when we talk about Judgment Day, this is a day when God will lay open all of our lives. Every secret thing will be brought to light. Uh, This is also very clearly stated in the last two verses of Ecclesiastes. Here's how that book ends. says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Every secret thing, good or evil, will be brought to light on the day of judgment. And notice that both good things 
and evil things will be revealed. It's not like Judgment Day is just God examining our lives for sin. No, God will also bring to light the good that we have done. More on that later. Notice also what the author of Ecclesiastes says here. In light of this coming day of judgment, the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. Because, or for, God will bring every deed into judgment. So the recognition that we will all stand before God one day should cause us to honor and obey him. So those are the first three points. I hope those are all pretty clear and and, uh, non-controversial. There is a day of judgment coming. All of us will stand before God, and it will be a time of revealing. Nothing will be hid from the eyes of God on that day. Next, these last two points are more controversial. But they are also so apparent in Scripture that I really struggle to understand how anyone can disagree with it. I'll show you this quite clearly in a minute. Here's point number four. The judgment will be determined on the basis of our works. Okay, a lot of Christians have the idea that because we are not justified by works, we will not be judged by our works either. That is not true. It is true that we are not justified by works, meaning we don't earn salvation by good works. We are saved as sinners by the mercy of God. Jesus died for our sins. He offers us a full pardon, not on the basis of anything in us, but because God in his grace has given this gift to us. It is an act of his mercy, not something we deserve for our works or something we have to work to earn. But when it comes to Judgment Day, the Bible could not be more clear in saying that we will all be judged by our works. And here's how I think this all fits together. As Christians, we are made into new creatures. God gives us new life. He transforms us from the inside out. We talked about this a few weeks ago, how God puts his spirit within us. He dwells with us. He convicts us of sin. He urges us to do right. And so from the day that we come to Christ in repentance and faith, for the remainder of our lives, if we're truly converted, there will be evidence of that faith working itself out in our lives. This is what James 2 is talking about when it says faith without works is dead. Our faith is demonstrated by works. So yes, we do not earn forgiveness. We do not earn eternal life by our works. But if we are truly saved, if the Holy Spirit is within us, that will be made clear by the transformation of our lives over time. We will begin to live lives of obedience to the Lord. Our actions, our attitudes will display our allegiance to Christ, and the Spirit's work in us. So that on Judgment Day, God will not look into our hearts and see if we believed the gospel, but rather he will judge us on the objective basis of our works following our conversion to Christ. In other words, the evidence of new life in Christ is what will be presented. Now, let's look at some biblical texts on this. As I said, this is the most controversial point that I'm going to give you this morning, so I'm going to show you four very clear passages of Scripture on this. And I want you to see the passage in its context, so you know I'm not pulling out a random verse and misusing it. First, almost at the very end of the Bible, we read these words, Revelation 20, verse 11 and following. says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead, notice, 
were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So they are judged by what is written in the books, and those books are filled with their actions, their deeds. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. That seems pretty clear to me. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Remember we said in the eternal state for Christians, this isn't a place up in the sky, it is here on earth, and this is what the passage here is describing. God making his presence among us right here on earth, so that heaven and earth become one. Verse 4, continuing to describe that eternal kingdom, says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So you see very clearly there, the distinction in lifestyles is what determines their eternal destiny in terms of their final judgment. God will judge us according to our works. Those who followed Christ and lived according to his principles will be rewarded, given access to the kingdom of God on earth. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. He will bring an end to their suffering and death and pain, and he will dwell among them forever. Meanwhile, those who lived sin-filled lives, as the last verse we just read described, they will be sentenced to eternal torment. Next passage on this, Romans chapter 1. And again, we're looking at what determines our judgment on Judgment Day, and I'm saying it is all about our works. We will be judged based on how we lived. Those who lived lives of sin will be sentenced to hell. Those who lived uh, lives of following the Lord, obeying his commands, will gain access to the kingdom of God and will be rewarded. Again, here's another passage I think is unmistakably clear. Romans 1, beginning with verse 29, says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. 
We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So those who practice these sinful behaviors that he just mentioned, those who hate God and reject him in this life, they will face God's righteous judgment. Verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Notice verse 6, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. That seems, again, sufficiently clear to me. He will render to each of us according to our works. Those who in patience practice well-doing, seeking for glory and honor and immortality, he will give them eternal life. But those who are self-seeking, not obeying the truth, but obeying unrighteousness, they will face God's wrath and fury. Verse 9 There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. God will judge us on the basis of our works. To those who do well, he will give eternal life. Those who are selfish and do not obey him in this life will face his wrath. Now again, we are not talking about how we are saved. The only reason any of us can do anything pleasing to God is because he has made us new. He has given us his spirit to cause us to walk in his ways. We don't earn this forgiveness. We don't earn our own redemption from sin. As Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we don't earn our salvation, Paul says. It isn't of our own doing, a result of our works. It is all God's grace to us. But as Christians made alive in Christ, we are his workmanship. God has given us new life in Christ, and he has good works for us to do. And so on Judgment Day, our commitment to Christ, our faith in him, our allegiance to him, will be evaluated as either genuine or fake, on the basis of our works. In other words, just claiming to be a Christian won't count for anything on that day. Saying you believed in Jesus won't do you a bit of good because that isn't what being a Christian is. Being a Christian means you have turned from your sins in faith to Jesus. He is your Lord. And if he is your Lord, there will be evidence in your life. You will seek to obey him. And that obedience to Christ is what will demonstrate that you belong to him, and that is what will matter on Judgment Day. Two more passages on this. Let's look at Jesus' own words about the Day of Judgment. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So this is Jesus coming to Jerusalem, establishing the eternal kingdom on earth. Verse 32. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now notice the reason that they are allowed in the kingdom. Verse 35, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Again, why? Verse 42, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? He will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did it, did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. When we stand before Christ on Judgment Day, It will not matter what we believed or what we claimed. It will matter what we did. Our lives will be the evidence. Our works will demonstrate if we had a commitment to Christ or not. One more text, Matthew 16, 24. Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So our judgment will be determined on the basis of our works. And I have about a dozen other passages on this point, if you're still not convinced, that I can share with you after. I hope these four will be sufficient to make that point. This is one of those subjects where human reasoning and theological deduction has sadly replaced simple and straightforward texts of Scripture. If we are Christians committed to believing the Word of God, we should read these passages and believe exactly what they clearly say. There is a day of judgment coming. All of us will stand before God on that day, and our lives will be revealed plainly. Every secret thing will be brought to light, whether good or bad. And we will be judged on the basis of our works. Those who lived lives of sin will be punished by God. Those who were genuine followers of Christ, as demonstrated by their lives of obedience to him, they will be allowed into his kingdom. Now, you might think it's unfair that some people are really terrible, and others, maybe they reject Christ, but otherwise they're decent and Kind people. How can God judge them all the same? I mean, how is Hitler, you know, in the same category as someone who, you know, your neighbor who helps people and treats others well, but maybe he's an atheist? You might think Judgment Day is unfair, or perhaps you think of it as unfair on the other side. How is it that some people 
will be in the kingdom of God and they gave their lives for Christ. They worked hard for his kingdom. Maybe they died as a martyr trying to get the gospel to some unreached people group. And then along with them, others will end up in the same kingdom who lived pretty easy lives. And, you know, they were church-going people who loved Jesus and served him in various ways, but not to the extent of those others who really gave their lives for Christ. How is it fair that they will all receive the same reward? Well, in case you have that kind of hang-up and feel like God is maybe being unjust with these two options, let me help you out. This is point number five, by the way. There are degrees of reward and degrees of punishment that will be given on Judgment Day. The degree to which some are punished and the rewards that some are given will vary drastically. Okay, It's not like there's just two black and white options. It's either eternal life in God's kingdom with everything you could ever want or eternal punishment in hell suffering forever. No, there are shades of gray within both of those options. There will be some who are allowed into the kingdom of God with nothing. Others who will be allowed into the kingdom with an inheritance and riches and rewards and even places of authority and power in the kingdom. In other words, the kingdom of Christ will be better for some than others. And in the same way, those who reject God in this life, some will be punished far more severely than others. And I don't know all of the variables that goes into that or how God works all of that out or even how different it will be, but I think we should trust in the justice of God to sort all of that out and do what is right. Uh, here are some texts, though, that indicate this. We'll see this also in our passage in 1 Corinthians 3 as well. But just to show this now, Romans 2, verse 5, we read this a moment ago. Because of your hard and impenitent hearts, these are those who are haters of God, resisting God, and you know he went through that whole list of, of sins, they are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So these in Romans 1 and 2 are specifically told, uh, said to be God-haters. These are people who persist in the worst kinds of sins, celebrating what God calls evil, rejecting him completely. And Paul says such people are storing up more and more wrath against themselves. They will face a more severe punishment. Jesus said also in Luke 20, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long, long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So there are degrees of punishment. It's not like everybody gets thrown into the same boat regardless of how they lived. Jesus says here that those who abuse widows, taking advantage of the poor while you know, showing themselves to be religious and spiritual people, basically frauds who take advantage of people, they will receive greater condemnation than others. And this is also true on the other side of the equation. There are degrees of reward and wealth and inheritance that are given in the new heavens and new earth. Matthew 6 verse 19 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. So there are things that we can do now in this life that will give us greater rewards and benefits for all of eternity. And we'll get to uh, looking at what, what sort of things we can do. What are the things that are, are going to be rewarded? But get this very clearly in your mind. 
Not everyone is going to have the same experience in the eternal kingdom of Christ. It will be far better for some than others. I was thinking of how to illustrate this point, and and a thought came to my mind. Think of how we all come into this life. Some of us are born into great families here in America. You're a place of privilege, a place of opportunity. Uh, Maybe you had the blessing of being born into a Christian home, as I was, taught the Bible from a young age, given a good education and opportunities. Meanwhile, others are born into terrorism in Afghanistan. I mean, can you imagine being born to radical Islamic terrorist parents, taught in school and at home from the time you're a young child, that you're supposed to grow up and kill those who don't accept Islam, born into poverty and war and indoctrination. Both of us are born into the same world, but man, it really matters how you enter. We have the same life, we're both born into the same planet, and yet our existence starts off drastically different, with different benefits, different opportunities, different standings. The same is true in Christ's kingdom. Just because a whole group of people may enter the kingdom of God eternally doesn't mean we all enter in the same condition or with the same benefits. Now, as Christians, we do not need to fear Judgment Day. If we are in Christ, seeking to follow him, we will not be sentenced to any degree of punishment. Romans 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So when we, as followers of Jesus, think about Judgment Day, the rewards are what we should be considering. We should be working now in order to earn rewards for all of eternity. And don't feel bad, by the way, about having that mindset, like that's a selfish sort of way to think. No, many places in Scripture, it's actually encouraged. We are supposed to be motivated by the prospect of eternal rewards. And it would be incredibly foolish for us not to consider how our actions in this life will affect our lives in eternity, because eternity is forever. Uh, Here's a visual illustration that maybe will make this click for you. Let's say you live to be around 80 years old. That's the average life expectancy in the U.S. You know, maybe some of you will eat really well and exercise and do all that stuff you're supposed to do, and so you'll live to 100. Okay. But your life is a certain fairly limited period of time illustrated by this little line segment on the left. Now, how long is our life in comparison to eternity? Well, there's no way to even answer that question. You see the little arrow at the end of the line signifying it goes on infinitely. And although it may be hard for us to imagine, this is what the Bible says about our lives. They are a vapor of steam that appears for a short time and then vanishes. This life is incredibly brief in comparison to the next life, which extends forever. Therefore, it makes no sense to try to live for the most pleasure, the most comfort, the most ease in this life. It makes sense to do whatever we can in this brief period of time that we have to have the best life for all of eternity. We should be focused in our lives here and now on the future that awaits us. Now, maybe you're thinking that in light of all this, if you're really going to work during this fleeting life to have a good day on Judgment Day and enjoy eternal rewards, then you should you know, quit your job, become a Bible teacher, maybe a missionary to a foreign country, 
uh, spread the gospel somewhere in Africa or something like that. Like the only way to really do this right is to become a, a leader in Christianity, a teacher of some kind. But actually, James chapter 3 says, in light of judgment day, not many of you should be teachers. James 3 verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So yes, there are some, obviously, who are called by God and gifted to teach, and if they do so faithfully, they will receive rewards. Paul's going to talk about that in our text. But don't assume judgment day will automatically be better for pastors or missionaries or leaders in the church than for you. That is not the case. I don't get any extra points for being a pastor. In fact, judgment day will be more intense for people like me in terms of the standards and the duty to teach accurately and not mislead people. So don't feel pressured to have to serve in some spiritual public office like that, as if that's how you get rewards. Rather, here are some ways you should be thinking. I'm going to give you now seven things that you can do that the Bible says gain you a good inheritance in the eternal kingdom of God. And these should be of great interest to all of us if we are seeking to have a good time in eternity and set ourselves up for the benefits and rewards that await us. And all of these apply to all of us, regardless of our gifts, regardless of our callings in life. Number one, we earn rewards simply by growing spiritually. Growing in our obedience to Christ, seeking to know him more, becoming the Christian he wants us to be. 2 Peter 1 verse 5. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, if you're growing spiritually and maturing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what all of us should be seeking to be richly welcomed into the kingdom of Christ, not just to barely make it in. One way for the, the, is for these qualities to be increasing in our lives, to be growing in our faith, in our virtue, in knowledge, in self-control, faithfulness, godliness, and love for others. This is basic spiritual maturity on a personal level. Next, we earn eternal rewards by sharing the gospel with non-Christians. Many passages we could look at on this. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul in this passage has been talking about how he seeks to win as many people as he can to Christ and share Jesus with the lost. And in verse 23, he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we and imperishable. So the wreath there refers to 
a crown that was given to recognize the victor in an athletic competition in the ancient world. Uh, just like athletes today work hard, you know, today's Super Bowl Sunday, of course, this is fitting. Uh, there's going to be a lot of people out there today that are working very hard to try to win that trophy. And in the same way, Paul says, we ought to be striving for the eternal reward that awaits us. And the difference is, our reward lasts forever. And in this passage, one of the ways we earn that reward is through spreading the news of Jesus to others. Next, we earn eternal rewards by giving generously. Paul writes to Timothy as he's leading the church there in Ephesus, and he tells him in 1 Timothy 6.17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. As we've said before, if you are an average American today, you are rich. Congratulations. Uh, you can look this up on, on, on online. Actually, I did uh, yesterday. The, the median income globally is less than $10,000 per year. Okay, Most people in the world make less than that. We live in incredible comfort and wealth compared to the rest of the world, which struggles literally to eat, to have plumbing. They don't have plumbing. They don't have heat. They don't have air conditioning. We live like kings here. We have no idea because many of us have never been to poor countries of the world. So Paul's words to Timothy here applies to really all of us. Any one of us could work a job, save, invest our money wisely. We have all sorts of opportunities to be able to give generously. And Paul says we should not be haughty. We should not set our hopes on riches, but rather we should trust in God and be generous with what we have. And by giving generously, Paul says, we store up for ourselves as a good foundation for the future. And that's exactly what we've been talking about here. What can we do to ensure a better life in eternity? One of the things we can do is generously give. Next, acts of kindness to others. And in particular, the Bible seems to emphasize being kind to enemies or social outcasts. So in other words, people that you would not naturally be kind to. Oh, these are not your friends. This earns eternal rewards. Uh, we're going to look at a few texts on this that make it clear. We already saw in Matthew 25 when Jesus talked about how our acts of kindness to the least of these will be considered done to Christ himself and will be rewarded on Judgment Day. But here is another passage to consider in terms of our kindness to enemies. Luke 6, verse 27 Jesus said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. So here we're talking about being kind to people who are stealing from you. Okay, verse 30, give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? 
Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So as an expression of the love of God in us, the fact that he's been so kind and gracious to us who are undeserving, we ought to then reciprocate that out to others. We ought to be kind and generous to people who are not our friends. Next, private acts of worship and service to Christ will be rewarded on Judgment Day. In other words, spiritual things that you do, not because anybody sees, but even when no one is watching. Matthew 6, verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So just as we talked about giving generously, Jesus adds another layer to this. If you give and you make a big deal about it, you make sure everybody sees you and how much you're giving, Jesus says, well, you have your reward. You got the intention, the attention that you were seeking, you impressed the people, congratulations. It counts for nothing. Rather, we are told to give in secret and we will be rewarded. This is one reason I personally like really like the online giving option at our church. I kind of like the idea someday of getting rid of offering plates. Uh, I'm not sure that it's like sinful to put something in an offering plate, uh, but I don't, I don't really like the public kind of display of it. I'd rather us all do our giving privately when no one can see. That's a personal opinion on that. But even beyond giving to the church, this passage is more specifically talking about giving to those in need. When was the last time you saw someone in need and you helped them when nobody was around to see you do it? When was the last time you saw a homeless person and you decided to buy them a meal? These are the types of things that Christians should regularly be doing. We should do them not in a way that draws attention to ourselves, but rather in secret. Verse 5, Jesus continues, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So even private times of prayer and worship to God, when nobody is there to see you, Jesus says these are things that God will reward you for. Next, we earn eternal rewards by being hated and insulted for our faith, for being a Christian. And this is something I think is pretty cool about the time in which we live. Christianity is becoming less and less popular. Our culture more and more hates and condemns as evil those who hold to basic Christian teaching. And Jesus says this is actually a blessing because we will be rewarded eternally for enduring such treatment. Not just talking about persecution or Uh, Dying for Christ, obviously those things are rewarded. That's all throughout Scripture. But even simply being hated and spurned and insulted for Christ. 
Luke 6 verse 22 says, Jesus speaking, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Now notice, it doesn't say that you're supposed to be hated or spoken against because you're a jerk. Okay, we're talking about standing for Christ, even when it's very unpopular in the culture, not intentionally being obtuse. But if you are hated and reviled simply for being a Christian, for following Christ, if that's becoming unpopular and you're being criticized for it, and you hold to your faith and stand for Christ, Jesus says, verse 23, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. We are supposed to rejoice when treated in such a fashion. We're supposed to leap for joy. Every time you are insulted or hated for being a Christian, Jesus says, do a little jig. You just earned rewards. Standing for Christ, being unashamed of him, even when it's unpopular to do so, is something that God will reward. And again, I think it's a pretty cool thing to think about, considering the time that our culture is in, how Christians are starting to be viewed uh, very negatively. Okay, one more thing we'll look at before we get to our text. We can earn rewards in the kingdom of God by being a respectful and hardworking employee. I bet you didn't have this on your list of what you thought I was going to say. But, but the Bible teaches very clearly that simply by being a hardworking, respectful worker in the workplace, you can earn rewards in God's kingdom. Ephesians 6 verse 5 Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. We've talked before about how Christians are to submit to our authorities out of submission to Christ, ultimately, who set them over us. Verse 6, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will or with a good attitude, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So when your boss is being a jerk and you really want to be rebellious against him, remind yourself you're serving Christ. Your submission to earthly authorities in your life is in fact an act of worship and submission to your Lord. So maybe pray a quick prayer when you have a really bad attitude towards your boss and just say, okay, Lord, this one's for you. Time for me to be a Christian. And you do what you're supposed to do with a good attitude. That little act of sincere effort to please God and display Christ-likeness in your submission in the workplace, that is something that God says will be rewarded. Similarly, Colossians 3.22, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Judgment Day should change how you go to work tomorrow. You should keep this in the back of your mind, that your submission to your employer, displaying a godly attitude as an act of worship to Christ, is something God will reward you for with an inheritance in eternity. Okay, so that's Judgment Day. That's how we receive eternal rewards. Let's get to our text now. Don't be too worried. We're going to move quickly through this. Much of these verses will simply be reiterating things we've already explored this morning. But I want to start by going back to verse 8, where we left off last time, verses 8 and 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 
where Paul says, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. We said last time that Paul is clearly teaching here, we will be rewarded on judgment day according to our labor, not according to the results of our labor. He's made pains throughout these last few chapters to make the point clear that Paul and Apollos and Peter, those who are serving Christ, ministering the gospel, the results are not up to them. It is not their wisdom. It is not their cleverness. It is up to God. It is up to God to decide how he will use our efforts, but we will receive our wages. We will be rewarded according to our labor. Our job is to faithfully work for the Lord. How God may use those efforts is up to him. And then verse 10, Paul continues, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul is speaking here, about how he preached the gospel in the city of Corinth and established this church. And then Apollos came along later, provided leadership and help to the church. And now he's gone too. And there are others within the church of Corinth that are providing leadership. And Paul says to them, be careful. Be careful about how you are building upon the foundation that I laid. Verse 11, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, obviously the day here is referring to the day of judgment that we've been talking about. On judgment day, Paul says the day will disclose it. Each one's work will be made manifest or clear. It will be revealed. It will be tested. Judgment Day, as we said, will be a day of revealing. Our lives will be open before God, and there will be no hiding from what we have done in our life. And Paul says here that our works for Christ's kingdom, specifically in the context of the church, will be tested to see the quality of it. Some of our works will pass through the fire of God's test and come out the other side, things like gold or silver. You can put them in fire, and they will actually be more visibly pure. It won't damage the material at all. Other works will be like hay or wood. You put those in the fire, they're consumed and revealed to be worthless. These verses seem to imply that it is impossible, this side of the judgment day, to determine the quality of one's work for Christ. We may look at the work that someone does for the Lord and See it as insignificant or poorly done, whereas it may be revealed on Judgment Day to be worthy of a great reward. And similarly, we may look at someone with apparently great results, and we may assume they're doing a great work for God, the Lord's using them tremendously, they're going to receive a, a great reward, and then all their work on Judgment Day may be revealed through this test to be wood, hay, and straw. It will all be worthless. So there's a degree to which we really don't know. The day of judgment will be a day of revelation. Things will be made clear that were previously obscure. And you can see Paul's point in this. They've been uh, making so much of people like Paul or Apollos. They've been comparing these people in their ministries. And Paul is saying, you're not even in a position to really know. You have no idea what you're talking about. God on judgment day will reveal whose work was of what quality. 
And if you're wondering what exactly that means, like what kind of works are are gold and silver, what kind of works are wood and hay, what determines the quality of our works, Uh, we may have a hint here in the next chapter, verse 5 of chapter 4. Paul says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before judgment day, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each will receive his commendation from God. So clearly Paul, again, is continuing to talk about this day of rewards that when God judges our works. And it seems to be that the hidden purposes of the heart is what will determine the quality of our work for the Lord, whether it will pass his test. So we gave generously, okay, but why? Did we do it for others to see, to receive praise from others? We used our gifts to serve the church. We did acts of kindness for others. Okay, but why? What was our motivation? And as Christians, our motivation for everything that we do should be service to our king. We should make it our aim to please him. Whether we're preaching or teaching the Bible in church or displaying love to someone in need or just having a good attitude in the workplace and working diligently, all of what we do in life should be done in service to King Jesus. And that is the kind of work that Paul says is gold, silver, and precious stones that will be richly rewarded on Judgment Day. I think, pretty sure, that is Paul's meaning there. Verse 14, If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So Paul says some will receive a great reward. Others will suffer loss. And the difference is determined by this test. Again, he's talking about our work for Christ being tested, our motives being revealed. Some will enter into the kingdom with nothing. He himself will be saved, Paul says, but his works will be burnt up. There will be nothing to show for it. He will not receive any rewards. No inheritance or wealth or whatever it is that we are given in eternity. Some will enter the kingdom with nothing, while others enter the kingdom with great reward for for their years of sincere work for God. Verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The you here in this verse is plural. So Paul seems to be speaking to the church as a group rather than to each individual Christian. He's saying the body of Christ, the church, is God's temple. He dwells among his people. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Paul is warning these Corinthians to be careful about the influence that they have over the church of God. Really consider the impact you're having on the church, whether it's for good or for bad or nothing. If you are helping to build upon the foundation well, Paul has already said you're going to receive wages. You're going to be rewarded for that. Whereas if you're dividing the church, if you're tearing one another down, as some of these Corinthians apparently were, Paul says God is going to severely judge you. The church is God's temple, and therefore, we must be careful how we impact our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. The Corinthians, as we've seen, had a real problem with elevating human wisdom and eloquence. 
And Paul has been sort of striking at the root of that issue throughout these last three chapters. And so here he says, if you think yourself to be wise, you should humble yourself. Verse 19, for the wisdom of the world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Human wisdom or impressive abilities, Paul is saying, will not count for anything when we stand before the Lord. Paul concludes, verse 21, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. It's fascinating to me that Paul here offers as a motivation not to boast two seemingly opposite things. First, he gives them a warning. God will not be pleased with you if you continue in this boasting in man and dividing the church of God, thinking you're better than others. And then secondly, the motivation is that all things are yours. Notice that in verse 21, Paul says, let no one boast in men. And then here's the reason why. For, or because, all things are yours. Now that doesn't seem at first glance to really follow logically, does it? You shouldn't boast. After all, everything is yours. But when you understand what Paul means here, it will become clear. First, he says, Paul is yours. You don't belong to Paul. Stop saying, I am of Paul. I'm one of his followers. No, he says, Paul is yours. He is your servant. Same with Apollos or Peter. We aren't trying to build a following for ourselves. We're trying to point you to Christ. Then he says, everything in the world is yours. Everything in life is yours. There's two ways to think wrongly about life. One is to have no fear or concern for anything in life at all. I've got this. This is the person who thinks himself to be wise. And Paul has said he needs to humble himself and realize that life can change in an instant. The other way to, be, to think wrongly about life is to despair. Not thinking you have it all together, but rather thinking that life is full of uncertainty, and so you live in fear and anxiety about the future. Similarly, there's two ways to think wrongly about death. One is to arrogantly ignore it. Don't think about death at all. Don't fear death, because you've maybe deceived yourself into thinking it's a long ways off, you don't need to worry about what comes next. That is hubris. Death often comes with no warning, and all of us will one day stand before God. The other way to think wrongly about death as a Christian is to be terrified of it. If you're a follower of Jesus, not just someone who believes in God, but someone who really has lived as a Christian, death should not be terrifying to you. If you are in Christ, you need not fear death, not out of any sort of arrogance, but simply out of a recognition of the grace of God to you, which has secured you a place in his eternal kingdom. Death is yours. Paul says death is your servant. It serves you by reminding you of the brevity of life and the judgment day that is coming. Death was claimed by Christ, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15 earlier. When he rose from the dead, Christ defeated death. Death became our servant that day. The sting of death is gone. Death is swallowed up in victory. Paul also says that all things present and future are yours. All things are yours in Christ. In other words, he is saying if you belong to Jesus... You need not despair about anything. 
Instead, you should be so thankful for all that God has given you, all that he has done for you, that your heart overflows with gratitude and humility before God. Shifting your focus off of God and onto humans is an indicator that you're not thinking as a Christian. We're going to look at what Paul writes in Romans 8, because I think this really clarifies what he means here when he says, all is yours in Christ. Romans 8 verse 15, he says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul says we are fellow heirs with Christ, meaning we inherit all that Christ has. All things are yours, things in the future and things in the present. Look at verse 28 of this chapter in Romans 8. Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And notice these last two verses. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As Christians, nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing, Paul says, is ultimately bad that happens in our lives. God uses all of it to mold us and shape us into his image. We often pray for a lighter load when we ought to pray for a stronger back. I don't know where I saw that. I saw that quote this week and wrote it down because it was great. We pray for a lighter load. We ought to be praying for a stronger back. In other words, even the trials in life, the hardships that we endure as we seek to follow Christ, those things are our servants. They mature our faith, and they they will result in future blessing. Here's one more way to earn rewards that I left off the list earlier. James 1 verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. All things are yours, even hardships in your life. All things are yours, therefore fear nothing, and therefore boast in nothing. Back to our text, verse 21. Let no one boast in men, 
for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. You are Christ's. You belong to him like a bride belongs to her husband. That's the image used throughout the New Testament to describe our relationship with God. We are joint heirs with Christ. We receive all the benefits of all that God has. He gives us all things richly to enjoy. Paul is not saying here that all things in life are going to be pleasant or enjoyable for us, but rather that they will be to our ultimate benefit. They serve us. And this knowledge should result in humility. Notice again, Paul says, let no one boast in men because all things are yours in Christ. In other words, we should be so broken and humbled by the grace of God to us that we would never tout ourselves as anything. We should be so in awe of him that we get our eyes off of any human. Paul wants these Corinthian Christians to turn their eyes to Christ, to live in light of all that he's done for us, and to live in expectation of the day when we will all stand before him. As we close this morning, I want us to really internalize one last point. I said it briefly earlier, but I want to circle back to it and emphasize it. For Christians, Judgment Day... I'm sorry, for non-Christians, Judgment Day should terrify them. We talked about this briefly on Wednesday night. It kind of came up at the end. The foolishness of the phrase, only God can judge me. The one being in all of the universe who you should not want to judge you is God. Yet for Christians, Judgment Day should not terrify us. Paul tells us in Romans 8, there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ. Our sins were paid for by Christ. We will not be punished for wrongs that we have done in the past. Rather, we will be rewarded for what we do for Christ. The worst case scenario for someone who is a follower of Jesus is that you make it into the kingdom with nothing, no rewards or benefits. Therefore, as Christians, the thought of Judgment Day should not terrify us. It should rather have the effect of motivating us. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, We are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul says here that judgment day should serve as a motivation for us to please the Lord. We should make it our aim in life to please God. In the very last chapter of the Bible, Jesus says these words, Revelation twenty-two twelve, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Recompense is simply the word that means reward. God is going to come and bring his reward to repay each of us for what we do for him. And that thought ought to motivate us to serve him more as we get closer and closer to that day. Yesterday morning, a man named... Henry Blackaby died. Probably, I I doubt anyone here maybe uh, would know who he was. But he was a pastor for many years, an author. He wrote uh, back in the 90s a very influential book called Experiencing God. News of his death started circulating yesterday morning in online kind of theological circles. And the first that I saw the news was someone who posted it on their social media account. And they simply said, Henry Blackaby has gone to his reward. And I thought, what a great way to think of death as a Christian. 
Death isn't ceasing to exist. It isn't even merely passing from this life to the next. No, we ought to think of death as going to your reward. Death for Christians is when all of our labor for Christ, all of our efforts to please him and serve him, will be worth it. We will not regret one moment. No doubt many of us will wish we had given him more. But every hardship, every trial, every sacrifice for Christ in this life will seem vanishingly small in, that, in light of the eternal reward that awaits us. And so with our eyes fixed on that day when we will stand before him, let us live each day making it our aim to please our Lord. Let's pray together.